You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. And the reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14 through to chapter 5, verse 10. And it's page 1204 in the Church Bibles. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who saved him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, son though he was. He learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who, who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Ruth. Just going to pray now before Jamie comes to speak to us from that passage. Thank you, Lord, for Jamie. Thank you for his love for you and his love for this church. Please bless his work and his words and his heart in the next little while and bless us through him. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Though you are the mighty king over all kings, you still delight to have your children run into your oval office, as it were, and tell you things and listen to you. And in fact, you're a king who comes out of your office to find us. Please help us now to turn our hearts to you, to listen to what you, our loving Father, want to tell us now. Please open our eyes to see you, and our hearts to wonder and to love you, and to find our rest in you. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again on the Lord's Day. Um, And for those of you that are visiting, if you don't know, uh, my name's Jamie. I'm the pastor here, uh, one of the uh, full-time leaders at church, so so welcome. And it's good to see you all both here, and if anyone's at Green Lane, it's good to see you there as well, or online. Um, So here we are, we're in sort of number five in our Hebrews uh, series, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus as our great high priest. 
now just a little bit of a, an introduction perhaps for us um, in what I think is really capturing uh, the theme of this short passage here, these, this short amount of, of verses. Um, I, I am someone who spent most of his sort of uh, younger life, uh, his younger adult life, I'm 42 now, that's where the whole crowd dis- disagrees with me and says, oh no you're not, but they didn't, so thank you. Oh, yes, you are. That's Rob, isn't it? Right. So, so, for, so for 42 years, for much of that adult life, the first half, I'm someone that always sought the approval of, of other people, right? So I always try to, having come from a broken family, try to impress uh, my father. I'm someone that always tried to impress his friends for the nature of my different works. I always sought to, to try and get the approval of others. And after a period of, of spending about eight years or so in, in one job, I left and I can immediately remember feeling massively inadequate going into this whole wide world that was set out before me. I left... Uh, to go into the big wide world with no qualification. So this is someone that left school with no GCSEs or any worth talking of. Uh, I spent most of my life thinking F was fantastic, but apparently it's not. Okay, so I went through most of my sort of my life, uh, my education with failed academic achievements. Uh, no achievements at all. I'm someone who was sacked from job to job and really didn't find his, his place in life at all. So as I left uh, the army with no qualifications at all, I was quite daunted at the world that lied before me. I was very acutely aware of my inadequacies. And so you'll probably appreciate as I hit my early 20s and feeling the call into ministry, ministry very early on, I was someone that thought, well, how can someone like me who has no qualifications who's from Essex, sounds a little bit dodgy, then go and start talking to people about Jesus. I've got no degree in any Bible school. I come from no sort of academic background. How could, someone like call, so how could God call someone like me into this type of, of work? And I can remember, as I, uh, after maybe about a period of four or five years of working and as an itinerant evangelist going into prisons and going into youth hostels and going into schools and different places all around the world and talking about Jesus... Uh, feeling the call to go to Bible school. And I went to one called Spurgeon's College, named after my hero, down in London, down from John's neck of the woods. And one of the first things I felt as I went in there, again, acutely aware of my inadequacies, walking in, and as you do, there's this big stained glass window, okay, that was one of Spurgeon's mottos. And as you walk in, there's a picture of of a hand, and it's holding a cross, and it means this, uh, well, the... the, 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 um, the writing underneath it means this, I both hold and I am held. And for me, that was like a, a wonderful reassuring word for me as someone that felt that inadequacy, that as I'm trying to push forward, as I'm trying to follow the Lord's call over my life, as I'm trying to hold on to Christ, that I'm not only trying to hold on, but what ultimately matters and what is undergirding it in my weak sort of efforts is the fact that I am also held by God. So I'm tr- I am holding on to God and I am held by God. And that sort of really spurred me on through those four years of going back to school all over again. Now for me, this passage sort of, again, reiterates this point. 
that we both hold on to Christ and that we are held by Christ. So when I come here, I see these things. It jumps out to me. It reminds me of my own story. It reminds me of my own testimony. I hope it's an encouragement to you here this morning. As you hold on to Christ, know that as you do, as you stand firm in that confession, know that you are also held by him and he will not let you go, brothers and sisters. So let's pray that sinks in. Let's start by doing that because we're going to need the Spirit's help. Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, as we turn to your word, point us to Jesus. Help us to see him. Help us to hold on in our faith, to stand firm to the confession of faith and to know that we not only hold on, but that we are held as your precious prized possessions. Help us with this, Holy Spirit, we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen. So we're switching theme now. We've seen some other uh, variations so far that Jesus is the greater and then comparing it to different figures. What we have for us this morning is comparing now Jesus to the great high priest. For those of you that don't know too much about Jewish history or what this office was or this person, a great high priest or a priest, what his role was, what he looks like, let me give you a short uh, illustration of, of what that would have been. So picture uh, the instructions. You have this guy. He's a, he's a high priest. He's set apart. He's selected by God. The first of which was Aaron, the brother of Moses. Okay, so he's set apart. And as a way of showing that he's set apart, he's arrayed in these wonderful garments. Okay, so imagine he has uh, this white tunic going from, from there all the way down to his feet. He has a blue robe, he has a sash, and at the bottom of his blue robe are these beautiful, intricate, intricately woven sort of purple pomegranates woven into uh, his robe. On each of his shoulders sat an onyx stone, so one on each side, and on each side were uh, six of each of the tribes uh, of Israel, so 12 in total, six on each side, sat on the sonic stones. It was almost like a symbolic way of saying that the priest is, is carrying God's, God's people and he's carrying their burdens. And then over his chest would be this big uh, gold press, breastplate, which again had 12 large stones signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. And that consisted of precious stones such as ruby and topaz and sapphire and emerald and amethyst and jasper. Again, each with the 12 tribes of Israel engraved upon them. And all of these things, it's almost like it's symbolic as it sat upon his chest. Is it, it's situated close to his beating heart. And his heart, this high priest, his heart was beating as he entered tentatively into God's dwelling place. And it's like as these 12 tribes, as God's people are pressing upon his heart and he, he feels it as he goes into this place, he's making intercession for them on their behalf as he comes before God. Now upon his head was a turban, a white cloth turban, and on the inscription on a gold plate again in Hebrew says, Holy to the Lord, holy and in his possession as he went in was the Urim and the Fumim, which were these, um, way, the, the way in which God would decide things by casting them and it would give, us, uh, it would give them the, uh, the, the will of God going forward. So, for example, looking to one of the Jewish festivals, Yom Kippur, having passed through the door of the outer court, now the door to the holy place, and then finally through the veil into the Holy of Holies. 
he would have to, this high priest who stood in the middle, who was this mediator between God, a holy and a righteous God, and a sinful people, he would enter in with the sacrifice of the blood. And he would bring it before the altar. And when he was in, he was not hanging around. Okay, he was in. The blood was on the altar, and it was straight out. So solemn and so fearful was it to go into God's presence that in the high priest at the bottom were woven in these, these bells so that you could hear that he was moving around and you could hear that he was still alive and he had not been struck down dead. So solemn, so profound was this act. So scary was this act. So it was a splendid sight. One with great significance for God's people. A figure chosen by God from amongst the people. A figure highly revered since the time of Aaron, all the way down through the ages. As the person who, on behalf of God's people, sought forgiveness through the sacrifice upon the altar. He carried the burdens. He intercedes for the people. He carries the will of God. And he declares... That God is, the Lord is holy and he enters the holy of holies. So wonderful, wonderful imagery. And I would uh, encourage you all to go through the Old Testament account to see it in, in more detail. Deeply profound. Now, the, the awe and the splendor of what's taking part here is actually in part the reason or the problem amongst God's people within its context. So, so rich in visual symbolism was the temple, the priests and the sacrifice that in the midst of the Hebrews' discouragement and ridicule, they were beginning to, as we looked in number one, session number one, look back to these former ways because they, they saw in it a tangible evidence of God with, with his people. They had the, the propensity to, to look back when facing with, with challenges, when going through difficulties, look back to the former glories, look back to the old ways. And as we looked again in session one, this is not something that's unique to uh, the Jewish people of the day, to the Hebrews, but it's something that's within our own hearts. We, we have the propensity when we're going through difficulties when we're going through times of great trial, when things just aren't going our way, to, to look back to the former ways of doing things. And for, for God's people, this was true there as well. Now, as they looked back, what the call of the text is showing us is that as, as splendid and as revered as that was, the high priest and the temple... And it was, and the high priest was a revered person, so follow me with chapter 5, verse uh, 1 to 4. It gives us a little, uh, a little um, definition of what the high priest did. So he was chosen from among men. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer us gifts and sacrifice for sins. And listen, this is, this is how the high priest should have acted, and maybe we see the opposite uh, in, in the gospel accounts of Caiaphas. See here, verse 2, he's to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God. So this is a God-given uh, appointment. It's a, a revered appointment. It's a splendid appointment. But the call of the text is that as great as these things are, 
As great as this office is, none of this compares to Jesus. None of this compares to Jesus, the better and the greater high priest. So, the way in which the the author to Hebrews and the way in which he, he, he does that is he does that through a series of comparing and contrasting. So, to compare Jesus' high priestly credentials to, example, uh, Aaron, verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, we see Christ's weaknesses, and again we see this um, in a chiastic type, type um, uh, format in the way that it's sort of built together. So we see Christ's weakness and sympathy. Then chapter 5, verse 1 to 3, we see Aaron's weakness and sympathy. And then going back to front 5, verse 4, we see Aaron's call from God and Christ's call from God. So we see uh, a comparison between Jesus and Aaron, the great high priest. But to contrast it, remember that whilst Aaron and indeed every high priest after him had to offer sacrifices, not just for the people's sins, but for their own, chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus, though tempted and tried, didn't have to make any offerings, any sacrifices for his own sin because he had none. Jesus was sinless. So though tempted and tried, as we've heard already this morning, he did not sin. And so it says in chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He was perfect, unlike the other great high priests. He was perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what do we do uh, with this fella, Melchizedek? We, can, this is going to require a little bit of attention, okay? So don't switch off just yet, right? And again, I'd recommend you go back to the Old Testament. You learn a bit more. You can jump forward and look in chapter 7. But we come across this figure called Melchizedek. Now, just preceding this, uh, remember how Aaron and every subsequent high priest from the line of Levi... He was from the line of Levi, as splendid as they were, had limited time, like all will. They all die. But Jesus, however, isn't from that line, that priestly line, but as we read, was from the line of Melchizedek, who did not die. So who is this Melchizedek then? Well, his name means king of righteousness. He's this strange figure who, because he's so strange and there's a lot of sort of ambiguity around him, some people, it's led led them to say, some scholars to say, that he is kind of like this pre-incarnate Christ figure. He's this Christophany, if you like, uh, from the Old Testament. Now, I think that we can, and again, there's uh, other credible arguments against against this, but I think we can dispel that theory as he is described rather as a historical figure. So he's one who was introduced in Genesis 14 as actually meeting with Abraham. And he met with him as the king of a geographical place, the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's this earthly person in an earthly place, I I would say. But what made him so unique was the fact that one, again speaking of Melchizedek, who Jesus is compared to, okay. Number one, he seemed to have a higher standing than Abraham which when you follow the account, he does. Why do I say that? Because the lower was the one that brought the sacrifice to the higher, which is what Abraham did. Are you tracking with me, yeah? So Melchizedek is higher, if you like, or 
if you want to use the terminology, is more important than Abraham because it's Abraham who's bringing something to him. And then the other way around, it's usually the higher that blesses the lower. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So that indicates to us that whoever this Melchizedek fellow was, he has a a higher status, even more so than Abraham, which was very important for the Jewish mind. So they're waiting for this figure to come, this this important figure. They're trying to understand who he was. So this has always caused a great deal of fascination as to who can be higher than Abraham, the father of the faith. The second thing that makes him so fascinating was not just his sort of status and who he was positionally. The second thing that makes him very intriguing was that his, of, it, was that his office consisted of both king and priest, not one or the other, but both, which you, you just did not see. But Melchizedek fulfilled it. So he was both a king, the king of Salem, a historical place, but also a priest in that he took Abraham's sacrifice and blessed him. The third thing that makes Melchizedek so intriguing and of particular interest to our text is that you see neither his birth nor his death. Or if you like, in Melchizedek, symbolically, we see no beginning and we see no end. So from his role, as David prophesies in Psalm 110, from his lineage will come an even greater, or, or in the order, sorry, of Melchizedek, will come an even greater future priest and king like Melchizedek. Enter Jesus. Jesus is the one who actually has no beginning or end. Thus in Jesus, this order of Melchizedek lives on forever because Jesus fulfills it. So he has a higher standing than Abraham, as does Jesus. He is a king and priest. Notice Jesus was not born into the Levitical line, right? But he was born of the tribe of anyone want to have a go? From the line of Judah, Judah that's right, which was a, not a priestly line, but a, a kingly line, that's right. So Jesus is both priest and king and he has no beginning and no end and this is what the author wants us to see and therefore he is because he is from the order of Melchizedek in that respect unlike Aaron or any other earthly high priest so so anyway Jamie you sound like a little bit like you're going around in riddles here why is this so important and it is well it's important on so many levels let me give you two okay So first, it it shows the role that Jesus has fulfilled as the great high priest in making atonement for our sins, okay? So Jesus is the great high priest. Why is it important that we understand this description of him? Because it shows us what he has fulfilled by looking back to the Old Testament order of, of a great high priest. And that was making atonement of the sins of his people. Jesus, like the great high priest, is God's chosen one. He's not only chosen, he's our great apostle, which means he is the one sent from God. Why was he sent? Well, he was sent, like we see symbolically, on the shoulders of the great high priest to carry our sins and our burdens upon the cross. Do you see it? Do you see the the comparison there? As the priest carries our sins upon his shoulders, so Jesus carries the sins upon many, upon his, upon the cross. 
He carries the love for his people over his chest. He carries the love for his people like no other priest upon his heart and in his hands as he carries the cross. He was sent into God's presence, the Holy, Holy of Holies, to make atonement between a holy God that thunders against sin. Not with the blood of sheep or bulls or goats, but by his own blood. Brothers and sisters, do, do you know this today? That this is what Jesus has, has done for us. And perhaps, again, I know we're in a church, but maybe there are some people here today and, and you just don't, you don't know Jesus as the high priest this way. You don't know that uh, Jesus came to fulfill that office of great high priest, that he may take your sins and your wanderings and your selfishness and put in you first upon himself, that when you come to him and you recognize that what he has done upon that cross for you, for you, that you may be forgiven and made new, he has done that for you. When you come to that place and by repentance and faith say, yes, Jesus, I surrender to you. Forgive me of my sins. Make me yours. That he becomes your great high priest. Brothers and sisters, if there's anyone here today that does not know that, that does not know Jesus as their great high priest, here today, hear the word of God that says, do not harden your heart. Turn to him, repent and believe and call him uh, your Lord and your Master and your Saviour. But we also see another angle here, don't we? And I think this is primarily the the, the main application of the text here today. It's reminding us of Jesus' role of great high priest in making atonement for our sins. But it's also showing us Jesus as the great high priest standing in glory interceding for his people as the resurrected Messiah. So chapter 4, verse 14, it says, does it not? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens, not through the outer court, not the doors in the holy place or beyond the veil into the holy host, but passed through, or the original says, pierced through the heavens into God's presence, not to sprinkle blood, leave to come back next year, year after year after year, but he's pierced through the heavens into God's presence before the throne and he has sat down. Why? Why has he sat down? Because it is finished. Because what he has done means it is finished. And now there is nothing more that we can do to receive forgiveness of sins except by faith believe. By faith believe. Jesus is the line of Judah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And also because of these atoning work upon the cross, he is our great high priest. And so it's equally important that we see from our text today that there is this ongoing work of a better great high priest. It's not just an earthly one interceding for our sins, but he's in heaven now interceding for his people. Never again, not, not, not by ongoing sacrifices. So this is again is one of the arguments of Hebrews. He doesn't do this by continually sacrificing himself. This is one of the, the dangers of what we are, are shown in Catholic Mass. Because it's not a re-sacrificing of Christ. It's been done, it's happened, he's sat down, it is finished. Never again is another blood sacrifice necessary. The temple, the sacrifices, the Levitical priestly duties are all now rendered defunct. Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, 
has been given all power and authority and a name above all names. And he is making intercession for his people. So I wondered if you, if you can um, do me the favour of, of imagining that. So you don't even have to look at me. Okay, so just imagine, close your eyes at, at, at the reality of where Christ is now for you. For you. At the right hand of the Father. Pleading for you. Interceding for you. And then open your eyes. And then turn to your neighbour and tell them, Jesus ever lives and pleads for you. Go on. Thank you. And, and, and if you're not sitting next to one and you feel a bit left out, come and tell me and I'll say it to you after. Because you are special as well. So, so what the author is doing, okay, this is what he's doing. He's calling the Hebrew Christians. Okay, this is the whole point of the high, high priest, why it's there. He's calling the Hebrew Christians in the midst of their discouragement. Not in their discouragement to, to look back to the old way of doing things or to gravitate towards other things, but to look up towards Christ. And you can hear it in the strength, even though it's not verbally spoken, but you can hear it in the strength of the text. So concerned about this drift is the pastor to the Hebrews, that he says in chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's concerned for his people, that they're drifting and that they're turning away. And there is, as we said at the beginning, this propensity within the human heart to doubt. There is. To drift. But our faith is an active faith. And whilst there's nothing we can do to be saved, it's by faith alone. And faith is entirely a gift of God. The other side of the cross, as, as with any other relationship... What, what do we see? It's something that we need to work at. And brothers and sisters, those of you that confess Christ as Lord, our faith, your faith is something that you must work at because it's a relationship. It's something that you need to, to commit to. It's the reason why we go to church. It's the reason why we go to house groups. Because if we don't, we will drift. We're called to be part of a fellowship together, to encourage one another. And it's something that we need to work against, this drift in. And so in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Let us, therefore, make every effort. Beloved, are we making every effort? Are we making every effort to enter the rest that Christ gives us? And he says, because if we don't, it says, if we don't enter that rest, if we're not making every effort, then we will perish by following their example of disobedience. So the call here is to, to make an effort, to work at our relationship, to battle discouragement, to battle the former ways, to battle unbelief, and yes, to battle and combat the lies of the devil, the accuser of the brethren. Because Ephesians tells us our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but it's against a whole host of evil wickedness, against Satan and all of his cronies. We must battle unbelief. We must combat the lies of the devil, the accuser who would whisper in your ear as he would to the Hebrew believers, give up, turn back. Did God really say that? And it seems that the author is also concerned not just with discouragement, 
not just with the spiritual battle that we're in, but he's also warning those who are drifting. He's warning those that have become over-familiar with the matters of the faith. And dare I say, he's warning those who have become lazy in their faith. That's what the text shows us. Our passage today, 4.14 to 5.10, is bracketed first by the call to make an effort. 5.11, at the end of that section, it says they no longer make the effort. Instead of growing in faith and onto meat, they're in fact like infants still stuck on milk. Now, there's a time and a place for that for new believers, but he's, his concern was that they've been Christians for so long and they've become lazy and they're drifting and they're not pursuing the deeper things of Christ growing in their relationship. And then fast forward to chapter 6, verse 12. It says that they have become slow of hearing and become lazy. So all different factors here, aren't there? All different types of scenarios. And I wonder if I am speaking to anyone here today, have you perhaps become discouraged in your faith? Are you facing uncertainty in your faith? Perhaps you've, you've drifted, you've lost your first love for a series of circumstances outside of your own control. Perhaps like some of the original audience of this letter, you've become lazy in your faith and you recognise it. What do we do? How do we respond? What do we do when our hold of Christ is weakening by the day? How do we respond when we recognise that is our situation. Well, if that's you, I'm going to give you the answer. So turn with me back to chapter 4, verse 14. You need to see it. Maybe it will come up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, 14. Because it's in order. What do we do? Maybe recognise, and I know there are many here facing discouragement and uncertainty today. And I also know there are people that are, are just not in a good place. Maybe rebelling against God. Maybe lazy in the faith. What do we do? Well, the first thing we are called to do, chapter 4, verse 14, is to think of Jesus. Come to Jesus. Run to Jesus. See Jesus. He is our great high priest. Second, we are called to, do you see it? Hold to our, next, next verse. We are, no, okay, we'll stick to the script. The first thing we are called to do is to think of Jesus. He is our high priest. Second, we are called to hold fast our confession. What's the confession? That Jesus is the Holy One. He is the sent one. He was sent for me to bear my sin and my shame, to die for me that I might be forgiven, washed clean and called a son and daughter of the Most High. Now notice again that word, the word confession. Here, it's not talking about a private word. It's not talking about a private word, but it's talking about a public confession. It's one of the reasons why in our hard times, and if that's you today in your hard times, we don't give up meeting together. We don't hide away from fellowship, but we commit to coming together and we confess together that Christ is the Lord. My, my situation might not be making sense. My world might, be, might feel like it's going down the toilet. But this I know and this I hold on to, that Christ is Lord. So, in our need, we are called in the family of God to confess our need for Jesus together. 
to say, I need Jesus, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in a time of difficulty, let us draw near together. Let us hold fast to the confession. Jesus is my high priest. He is Lord. So first, we hold on to our confession. We see it. Second, we remember that God, what, what does it say? Follow me so you know it's not just me making things up. We remember that he, what's his attitude? How does he relate to us? He, I, my hearing's not that good, I promise you. Uh, he, what, go on, Nan, you, you're saying it right. Yeah, that's right. He, he sympathizes with his people, he empathizes with them. You know, I don't know where you're at. Maybe some of you are not in a good place this morning. Maybe, uh, like Aaron or the high priest, the thought of coming to a holy and righteous God fills you with fear. Maybe for some of you, through circumstances outside of your own, feel like you're just constantly coming to God and the thought of coming to him again just fills you with shame and regret that you're in that place all over again, still on milk. Perhaps you just feel alone and you feel like no one really gets what you're going through. Maybe that's you. To which I say, dearly beloved, turn to verse 15. Hear the word of God this morning. For we do not have, we do not have, he's not this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. A high priest whom we can make ourselves vulnerable to. A high priest to whom we can pour our hearts out to. A high priest who is not distant, who is not unconcerned, who, or who does not understand. But rather we have a God who perfectly understands. Because he became flesh, he went through what we have. He was made, the scriptures tell us, like his brothers in every way. He wasn't pretending to be like us. He was like us. And he suffered, and he was mocked, and he felt pain, and he felt disappointment, and sadness, and loneliness, and betrayal. Everything, as Kathy said earlier, we see our children go through. Everything we as adults battle with, he has been through. And yet he's able to be our high priest because he did not sin. And so you can come to him. And isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus, our great high priest, though he has passed and pierced through the heavens into his, as his, in his glorified resurrected body, or as Revelation says, clothed in a long robe, with a sash around his chest, hair like white wool and snow, eyes like flames of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, his face like the sun shining in all of its strength, infinitely greater and more awe-inspiring than you or I could ever dare to imagine. Isn't it wonderful to know that yet we can still go to him? And the scriptures tell us that when the hearts of these people are stung, and heavy with pain, that he feels it. God, in all of his glory and splendor, he feels it, and he re resonates with it as someone who empathizes. That's your great high priest, church. But not only does he empathize, which is awesome enough, isn't it, that he knows, he knows what you're going through today, if that's you. Not only does he empathize, but Romans 8.34 says, Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
and who is indeed interceding for us. So he not only empathises with you, knowing that what you're going through, recognising what you're going through, feeling your pain, but he is someone that intercedes for you. 1 John 2, 1 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is acting as the great high priest who now intercedes for his people and as their advocate for you. So, verse 14, number one, hold fast the confession. If this is you this morning, struggling, battling, battered by the waves, hold fast to the confession. Do not give up the practice of meeting together. Hold fast to the confession. Christ is Lord. He is my great high priest. He died and he suffered for me. Number two, verse 15, remember that he empathizes with his people. He cares about what you're going through, down to the smallest detail. And then number three, from verse 16, he calls us then, what? He calls us, recognizing these things, to come to him. That's the call. That's the call, to to come to him. The, The writer to Hebrews, the author, is sharp in his words, but he's reminding us that we have free access now to Christ. And what do we find when we go there? Knowing that we are prone to wonder, prone to become overwhelmed by discouragement, prone to look elsewhere in our prosperity, prone to be subject to laziness or drifting. What chance do we have of holding fast? What chance do we have before God? Well, the scriptures tell us. As we run to God, as we run to his throne, as we fall at his throne because of Jesus, it's there that we will find grace in our need. Because of Jesus, our great high priest, as we come to the throne of God above, we will, holding fast, we will find grace. John Calvin, as we summarise and finish now, says that when you picture this, and this was something that really boggled his mind, it overwhelmed him as he thought about this, that we can come to directly to, to Jesus. We don't need to go through that whole system all over again, the works we can just boldly come to God because of Jesus. John Calvin said it's like a flag has been placed upon God's throne, sort of waving and beckoning us to come to him. And it's a a flag placed upon God's throne that frees our minds from all fear and trembling, unlike the priests in the temple. And it gives it a name which can allure us by its sweetness, and it's called the banner of grace and of his paternal love towards us. There are no reasons... Why, if you love him, his majesty should drive you away, says John Calvin. And so what he is saying there is picture, not one of an austere God that says, go away, what have you done? But come, come to me, receive my grace, know my love towards you. Grace for our troubles, grace for your pain, grace for your weakness, grace for our mistakes, grace upon grace and that's what we're going to pray and ask for now because we we need it i need it we need it i believe you need it all to know god's grace and his mercy to you today as his son is the great high priest so let's pray and in fact i'm pretty sure the uh, the worship team will be up very shortly that's kind of a cue but let's stand
Now, church, there are different ways in which different people respond to God's word. Some people like to do that through inwardly reflecting and in a quiet way. And don't worry, I'm not going to get to do anything weird. But then there are, there are other ways in which we can just take the opportunity if we recognize that's us and we recognize we are in need of God's grace today because of some of the things that I've explained. And this is just a wonderful opportunity to, to respond to, to God's word and to God's promises because he has sent, Jesus not only intercedes for us, but he has sent the Holy Spirit to come and comfort us. And so maybe right now as I pray and you recognize that's you, you might just want to respond. And one of the ways we can do that is by an attitude of our posture, just by putting our hands out and saying, Lord, I, I, I need you. I need you, Jesus. I need more of your grace and I need more of your mercy. And if that's you, I would encourage you to do it. And so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our great high priest. He's only king and lord of our lives. It's only the, the true prophet, but he is our priest. And we thank you, Lord, for those of us that, that do know him, that we stand here today because he is our great high priest who has suffered and died for our sins. But, Lord, we thank you that the scriptures also tell us that it does not stop there, but that you are at the right hand of the Father, interceding and pleading for your people. And so, Lord, I do lift up each and every one of us today. You know their hearts, you know their circumstances. Father, it doesn't matter if we express ourselves now by holding our hands out or not. You see our hearts. And, Lord, we confess to you that we are in need of more of your grace. We need to see you, Lord. We need to see you more, more, more clearly and know your presence and, and your love because we, we wander and we stray and we become discouraged. And we're hit hard by life. And so, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would minister to whoever that might be this morning. That you would pour out your grace. That they would know your love. And that they would be encouraged by your word to hold fast to the confession. And Lord, as your people gathered around as one church family, we want to encourage and support any that are in this, this way by saying Amen in the name of Jesus. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.